You are listening to the Life Church podcast. To learn more about Life Church, our gathering times at any of our central Indiana locations, or our Life Crew online, visit us at lifechurchin.com or follow the link in the description. Today's talk is from Pastor Mike Melito. 2 Samuel, back to 2 Samuel chapter 11 today. We have been uh, on a little bit of a hiatus from that where we talked about prayer and we just concluded 21 days of prayer yesterday and many of you were here in person praying with us and some of you I know were praying with us not in person and I hope that uh, you had found time to get dig your roots in deeper in prayer with the Lord. I, I always believe this, that that time in prayer is gonna equal some things after that time in prayer. And so even you being here today, I, I, I'm, I'm hoping and I'm believing and I think it's an informed hope that uh, prayer, that prayer is gonna make a difference in your heart as we go into a passage maybe some of you know and maybe some of you don't know, but uh, we're gonna read about a man after God's own heart in a way that is gonna challenge us today. Now we've been in 2 Samuel all year and I told you at the very beginning of this it's broken up to three parts. The first 10 chapters are about David's triumphs. He, uh, he became king of Judah, he became king over all Israel, he took Jerusalem, he built a palace, he brought the Ark of the Covenant back to the people, uh, he, uh, he tried to build a house for God but instead got a really cool promise from God that God was gonna build him a house. He showed kindness to Jonathan. He showed kindness to a nearby country. He gets in wars and he wins wars. He was kind of like Tebow back in the day. All he does is win, right? The first 10 chapters. And, uh, and then the second portion, chapter 11 and 12, are David's transgressions, which is where we're going to find ourselves today. And then the last portion, 13 through 24, are David's troubles. Again, as a reminder, David is the second most talked about person in Scripture, second only to Jesus. There are 62 chapters of the Bible devoted to David. By contrast, Abraham and Joseph, early faith fathers, had 14 chapters together, and Jacob has 11, Elijah less than 10. So David's a really important part of our heritage and our faith. Two times in Scripture, the Bible calls him a man after God's own heart. And for these first 10 chapters, it took 10 whole chapters and a long period of time for him to build all of these successes and this great record of, of pursuing God and expanding his kingdom here with Israel. And it's going to take two chapters to really almost destroy all of that. And that in and of itself is a lesson for us today, right? A life of success, a life of blessings, a life of God's favor can be destroyed with one small section of our lives, one indiscretion, one self-serving moment can rip away all those blessings and create a big mess. And we're gonna see that. It's two chapters out of 24 that are gonna be the pivot point into the rest of the book, which is all David's troubles. So let's go there, 2 Samuel chapter 11. And I'm gonna read it to you all together. It's a long passage. We're gonna read the whole chapter and then we're gonna break it down for you. Chapter 11, verse one. In the spring when kings march out to war, 
David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her, and he said, Isn't this Bathsheba, daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to him, he slept with her. Now she had just been purifying herself because of her uncleanness, and afterwards she returned home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, I'm pregnant. <laughs> David sent orders to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab and the troops were doing and how the war was going. Then he said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the palace with all of his master's servants. He did not go down to his house. When it was reported to David, Uriah didn't go home. David questioned Uriah, haven't you just come home from a journey? Why didn't you go home? Are you too good for your home? Uriah answered David, the ark, Israel, and Judah are dwelling in tents. And my master Job and all his soldiers are camping in the open field. How can I enter my house? to eat and drink and sleep with my wife as surely as you live by your life. I will not do this. Stay here today also, David said to Uriah, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited Uriah to eat and drink with him, and David got him drunk. He went out in the evening to lie down on his cot with his master's servants, but he did not go home. The next morning... David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, put Uriah at the front of the fiercest fighting, then withdraw from him so that he is struck down and dies. When Joab was besieging the city, he put Uriah in the place where he knew the best enemy soldiers were. Then the men of the city came out and attacked Joab, and some of the men from David's soldiers fell in battle. Uriah the Hittite also died. Joab sent someone to report to David all the details of the battle. He commanded the messenger, when you finish telling the king all the details of the battle, if the king's anger gets stirred up and he asks you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you realize they would shoot from the top of the wall at Thebez, who struck Abimelech of Jerubasheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the top of the wall so that he died? Why did you get so close to the wall? Then say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. The messenger left. When he arrived, he reported to David all that Job had sent him. And the messenger reported to David, the men gained the advantage over us and came out against us in the field. But we countered attack right up to where the archers were at the city gate. However, the archers shot down your servants from the top of the wall and some of the king's servants died. Your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. David said, told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this matter upset you because the sword devours all alike. Intensify your, intensify your fight against the city and demolish it. Encourage him. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband Uriah had died, she mourned for him. And when the time of mourning ended, David had brought her into his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. 
However, however, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. <clears throat> this is a tough story <laughs> when you look at it about David, the man after God's own heart. The very first thing that we read here is while his armies were going to battle, it says this is in the springtime when kings went to battle with their armies, David remained in Jerusalem. This is really the start of a problem. This is, if this hadn't happened, none of it would, right? The very first thing we, we need to know here about avoiding traps like this is very simple. Be where you're supposed to be. Do what you're supposed to be doing right? There's this quote from, and forgive me, it's a nerdy thing to say, it's from The Hobbit. Some people believe it's only great power that can hold evil in check, but that's not what I have found. It's the small acts of everyday deeds of ordinary folk that keep the darkness at bay, the small acts of kindness and love, or in this case, the small acts of obedience that keep the darkness at bay. Oftentimes we think, I just don't have the power to overcome sin in my life. Well, that's true. We need Jesus. But a lot of the habits and things that we say we don't have the power, if we would just do the small things that we're supposed to be doing, it would keep those other things in check. And in this case, none of this would have happened. It goes on to say that when he got up one evening, again, when he's home and he's not supposed to be, he strolled around on the palace rooftop and he saw a woman bathing. He hadn't sinned yet here, really. Seeing a woman bathing was not necessarily a problem. Guys, just level with you. We see things all the time in this society, right? The problem became that he didn't stop looking. <laughs> he continued to look long enough to notice she's a very beautiful woman, long enough to inquire about her, long enough to lust after her. Now, I want to tell you about uh, one of the most interesting ways I've seen this story told. Years ago, when Donya and I were dating, she was an early childhood education major. She'd already been in kids' ministry for years uh, in church and in, uh, in family. If any of you remember the family Christian bookstore, she did kids' ministry there. And uh, she, we, didn't, we weren't married. We didn't have kids. But she loved this thing called Veggie Tales. Anybody heard of Veggie Tales? If it was the 90s or early 2000s, you know what Veggie Tales is. Anybody here grow up watching Veggie Tales? Yeah, okay. Yeah, I didn't grow up watching Veggie Tales, but I grew up with my kids when I was showing them Veggie Tales. And I got more out of it sometimes than I think they did. But my first ever Veggie Tale was while Donya and I were dating, and she's like, oh, there's this new one that came out. Let's watch it. I'm like, I've never been excited about seeing a new kids movie um, about talking vegetables. And, and but you know, I really like Donya, so we'll go along with it. And, and it's. Guys, we'll do a lot, right? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, Veggie Tales. Woohoo. All right. Um, you're like, relax, Pastor. You like nerdy things. So um, but, uh, they, they use these talking vegetables to illustrate a story in the Bible. And this first one I ever saw was called King George and the Ducky. And, and it's about this story. And I have a little clip if you want to see it. I just want to just warn you, when you're a child watching this, it's innocent, it's 
fun. I can relate. I like my toys, whatever. When you're a grown-up and you know what they're actually talking about, ooh, this is disturbing, but here you go. Go ahead, play it. Give me a quarter. Ducky. What are you saying? That I shouldn't have whatever I want? Well... I must have it, I must get it, you must go and get it for me. If you want me to be happy, then you'll show me you adore me. Don't rest another minute till it's sitting here before me. If you want to do your best, I would suggest you go and bring me back that duck. But sir, if I could just jog your memory, you already have quite a few duckies. <laughs> Those are yesterday's duckies. Huh? What, what, these are all perfectly good duckies. Why, most of your loyal subjects would love to have even one ducky this nice. I don't like these, I don't need these, I don't want these any longer. My affection for those duckies isn't getting any stronger. To say I can't have what I want, you couldn't be more wronger. Don't ask me to explain, there will be pain if you don't go and get that our conversation is over. <laughs> so I'm sitting there with Danya watching this going, are they all like, what? What? Those are yesterday's duckies? <laughs> like, we know what they're talking about, right? I just, and yet it, it brings into focus how disturbing this story really is. If it wasn't clear already, um, and, and before you come, come at VeggieTales for, you know, uh, it, it maybe like you feel like, oh, they're marginalizing something serious, they're bringing some principles home to our kids in a way they can handle. I read this, I recently read this excerpt from a Corey Tenboom book, and I, I saw someone posted about it, and here's, here's what she was writing. She said, sex, I was pretty sure, meant whether or not you were a boy or a girl. 
and sin made uh, Tante Jans very angry, but what the two together meant, I could not imagine. And so I seated next to my father in the train compartment, I suddenly asked, Father, what is sex sin? <laughs> the, the question all of us fathers don't want to get to. What is sex sin? He turned and looked at me, as he always did when answering a question, but to my surprise, he said nothing. At last, he stood up, lifted up his traveling case from the rack over our heads and set it on the floor. And he said to, to Corey, he said, will you carry the suitcase off the train? I stood up and I tugged at it and I crammed, with, uh, crammed at it with all the watches and spare parts he had purchased that morning. It's too heavy, I said. Yes, he said. And it would be a, I'd be a pretty poor father who would ask his little girl to carry such a load. It's the same way, Corey, with knowledge. Some knowledge is too heavy for children. When you are older and stronger, you can bear it, but for now you must trust me to carry it for you. I thought that's very profound. And it brings us back to maybe appreciating veggie tales a little bit too. But I mean, there's a whole other message we could preach just on that quote, but it's, it's worth noting, as I said before, that the first glance was not the sin. We see men and women, we see a lot of things in our lives peripheral. It was the lingering that was wrong and created the problem. Be careful of the things that you linger on. Amen? Yes. He goes on to say, now she had just been purifying herself from the uncleanliness. Afterwards, she returned home and the woman conceived and sent word to inform David, I'm pregnant. Uh-oh. Verse six. David sent orders to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked Joab, and the troops, how, how things were going, how the war was going. Then he said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. And so Uriah went from the palace and a gift followed him. So David, if it's not obvious, is trying to set things up. So Uriah will sleep with his wife and everyone will assume this child belongs to Uriah. Seems like a solid plan. Albeit, you know, it's, it, what he's doing is really sick, right? Um, but even, even in what we see David doing, he's trying to cover up his sin. You and me, people, all of us, tend to always try to cover up our sin. This is the first thing Adam and Eve did is they try to cover up their sin. But we can't cover up our sin from God. God knew what had happened, right? And there's a principle in Scripture that we need to understand. It's, it's the things that we cover, God will uncover. And we're going to get to that in a little while. The things that we cover, God will uncover. But the things that we uncover, God will cover. First Peter 4, 8, above all, have fervent and unfailing love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. And so when we uncover things, when we're open about things, we are opening to the Lord for him to cover us. But when we cover ourselves, we will end up being exposed. And David maybe doesn't know this yet. Verse nine, but Uriah slept at the door of the palace with all his master's servants. He did not go down to the house. It was not a successful plan. Why? Why wouldn't Uriah do that? It just seems to make sense to me. Like if I was Uriah, I got to come home, I'm gonna go sleep in my bed. Like I, I, that's to me, like I, I don't know if you go on a long trip even, like I wanna come home and sleep in my own bed right? But anyways, he doesn't do it. Why? And, and, and he's asked why. Verse 11, Uriah answered David, the ark and Israel and Judah are all in dwelling in tents. They're all camping in an open field. They're all fighting. 
Who would I be if I, while all of my friends and all of my brothers are out there fighting, if I just went home and slept with my wife and had food and drink? I can't do this. I will not do this. In some ways, I have to think, this is just Uriah being this honorable is actually confronting David's heart because remember, David is the one who stayed behind when he was supposed to go. And now Uriah is the one who's saying, no, I'm not going to do this thing because I'm supposed to be with them. Right? So David tries again. Stay here today also, David said to Uriah, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah stayed. And David had a nice dinner for him, and, and they ate, and they drank, and David got him drunk. <laughs> this time, he'll go sleep with his wife. Why? Because he's drunk. <laughs> and yet Uriah still doesn't do it. Uriah is not a common man. He is a noble man. He is a self-sacrificing young man. He's not going to go and do this thing and while all of his brothers and sisters are out doing that. Even after he gets drunk, that conviction was so deep when all the inhibitions were removed by alcohol, he still wouldn't do that. When my men are in hardship, how could I relax in my house and sleep with my wife? David, you might do it in this season of your life, but I will not do it in this season of mine. He probably didn't say that. But that's what his actions were saying. Remember, because in the time when kings went to war, he stayed home, and Uriah's saying, I'm not doing this. I'm only here because you ordered me to be here. So he gets him drunk, thinking that'll make him lose his inhibitions, but it doesn't. Sometimes, and what we're going to see here, when we're around people who are making the right choices, where we're making the wrong choices, it really makes us uncomfortable. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like, it confronts us, right? We don't want to be around somebody who's doing the things we know we ought to be doing even if we're not doing them. Um, when I was, a, a, you know, a teenager, my friends, I, you know, I, I've shared a little bit of my testimony, but uh, a lot of my friends smoke pot, whatever they call it these days. They, today they eat pot, I don't know. Anyway, so I wouldn't know because I'm not into it, okay? So don't, you know, blame me. So, but uh, they'd always say, come on, Mike, you know, and peer pressure. But one of them just straight up said, it's not as fun if we don't all do it. And then slowly, someone stopped hanging out with me because of all the things that I did do, that was one thing I wouldn't. First of all, the contact buzz, if you know what that is, was enough for me. I got the munchies and everything else that went with it. But second of all, I just wasn't going to do it, and they didn't want to be around me anymore because I wasn't doing it. And sometimes it's that way for us. Like, if we're making bad decisions... And we're around people making good decisions. We don't want to be around them. Or maybe we're the person making the good decision. And we don't understand why this person's avoiding us. I, I think there might be a little bit of that going on. But David takes it to the next level. He goes beyond avoiding Uriah. Of course, he's still trying to cover things up. But look at what he does next. We read it. But he sends a letter to Job. And he says, put Uriah at the front of the battle. And then... Pull back. <laughs> I, this, is, this is murder. 
This is absolutely murder is what it is. And, and of course, Joab doesn't say anything. We can have a whole other message of when good people say nothing, right? There are several places in this story when good people could have had an opportunity to stop this progression, but they do nothing. We could always find a reason to do nothing. All that's needed for evil to prevail is what? Good men and women to do nothing. But to be fair to Joab, he had no idea why this order was coming. He, for all he knew, Uriah had done something bad. David was his king. David was his uncle. He had an order, right? And he doesn't ask questions. He's on the battlefield. Still, no good commander wants to waste a man's life in this way. And Job may not have known it yet that it's murder, but it had to unsettle him. And so he, he sends the message back to David, and he's actually afraid David's going to be upset with him because they got too close to the wall. And it's very likely that an arrow from the wall is what killed Uriah, but it also killed other soldiers. And tactically, Job knew this actually really didn't make sense what I did. And, and so he's afraid David's going to be upset about the call he made. And he's telling the messenger, just, you know, if David asks, like he's saying, why did you get so close to the wall? You knew lots of people die close to the wall. Why would you do that? Tell him, Uriah the Hittite's dead. I did this because you gave me an order. And so the messenger goes back and tells David this. And Job's obviously bothered by this, and the messenger's probably bothered by this. And the people who worked the closest with David probably knew maybe all of what was going on, but certainly some of what's going on. And they're all uneasy about it. But David says to the messenger, don't tell Job, don't let this upset you. <laughs> it's cool. No worries. We just had a man killed because I slept with his wife, but don't let that upset you. That, I mean, that's not what he's saying. To, that's not what he thinks he's saying, but that's exactly what's happening. Like, don't even think about it. Don't even think twice about it. You just keep that fight going. You intensify that, intensify that fight until you win. Finish the job. Don't worry about what happened with Uriah. You do your part. A man after God's own heart. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband Uriah had died, she mourned for him. When the time of mourning ended, David had her brought to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. However, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. This story perhaps is the story about David that most directly confronts us with the fact that although he might be a man after God's own heart, he's still very human. And the, thing, for, the first thing you have to admit about Scripture, and, uh, and, and even if it gives us some, uh, something to wrestle, is honest with us. Scripture is honest. It does not hold back the ugly parts. We don't have a single hero of the faith, so to speak, in Scripture where we don't see that there are human beings still. And that's good news for us. You're like, Pastor, I'm not sleeping with someone's other, somebody else's wife and having their husband killed. No, but scripture is a mirror to us. Guys, I, I'll just go ahead and say it. 
When Jesus said, when you lust after a woman, you've already committed adultery. Gal, same thing. So the, the scripture is a mirror. And even in a story like this, God and the Holy Spirit, maybe he's already confronting you. But we have to at least be grateful for the fact that it's honest with us. Now, what I, I'll be clear with you, what I struggle with is as we talked about before in 2 Samuel, David's already been breaking God's law by increasing wives to himself, right? We talked about him. He had multiple wives. In Deuteronomy, it says, kings should not multiply wives unto themselves. And, and so I'm looking at this going, well, he's been kind of doing some wrong things already, and now God's noticing. God notices always. God notices our sin always, and in his mercy, he still works in and through us. So before we get too worked up about that, remember God's mercy and grace at work in your own life. He's not waiting till you get it perfect to work in you. And it's, it's that case in all of history. God uses broken, sinful humanity to bring the message, ultimately, of the gospel. Because, as I said, this is a mirror. David follows a path of deep, dark sin, and God says it's evil, and yet he's a man after God's own heart, and we'll get to how God restores that. But the point is, God restores. And as we see this in David's life and we say, I see this in my own heart, we have to, for us to come to the, the cross and really receive the grace of God, we have to come to terms with our sinful nature and how terrible it really is and how hopeless we really are to get away from it. In a lot of ways, not to get too far off into a, a philosophical deep end here but it's until we experience some really bad things because of our choices sometimes until that happens we really don't get it Donnie and I were youth pastors for 15 years before we took different roles in churches and, uh, and we always there was always a, a mixture of you know church students that we had and unchurched students that we had um, in one of the churches we had like 70% of them were unchurched <laughs> and 30% were churched and, and you know there's different things uh, all the way but the, the unchurched kids to me and, and don't misunderstand me church kids okay I'm, I'm, I don't want to make a generalization, but in general, unchurched kids that were coming to church on their own understood why they needed grace. I more than one time had a church kid tell me, I don't know why I need grace, I live a pretty good life. Because they were comparing themselves to, you know, sometimes as youth pastors and pastors, we bring these amazing testimonies in front of people like, oh, I was a drug user and a drug dealer and I did this and I did all these terrible things and God rescued me and those are amazing if that's your testimony praise God but when we did that too much back in the day those church kids are like well I never did any of that what do I need grace for <laughs> well that attitude for one <laughs> we'll start let's start there pride comes before a fall <laughs> 
But it's almost like, you know, you don't have to go be a drug dealer to know you need Jesus. But there has to be a moment, an uncomfortable moment, when we realize, oh man, I need Jesus. Maybe this was David's moment. Of course, Jesus hadn't come yet, but David was part of God's plan to bring us Jesus. And here, in this really messy story, at the end of the passage, not only did David do terrible things, but he ends up getting to look like the hero. (laughs) He took in a widow and her baby. He gets to look like the hero. Some may have known what was going on, but not everyone knew what was going on. And it all started with not being where he was supposed to be and doing what he was supposed to do. Are you where you're supposed to be? Are you doing what you're supposed to be doing? Are you in the middle of God's plan for your life? Or have you veered? I don't mean in church, right? You're, hey, I will tell you right now, you, you are where you're supposed to be, okay? Right here, Life Church Eagle Creek. That's where you're supposed to be. But in life, for him, sin kind of crept in decision by decision. One thing on top of another. He decided to stay home. He decided to go out on the rooftop. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't in bed sleeping. He, he was staying up, uh, he was sleeping in late and staying up late and he saw one bathing and then he looked a little bit longer and it just kind of kept piling up. Is that sort of thing happening in your life? Has sin in your life affected others the way his sin was affecting others without even maybe without them knowing? Have you made an exit from the road of life and are now on a highway to hell literally? It was his sin. Sin is actually, the word sin is actually an archery term and it means to miss the mark. You know, we did axe throwing. We didn't necessarily do art, you know, archery. We did at the men's event. But I will tell you this. I, I will confess this. I did not participate because I'm insecure about my skills at hitting the mark. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> I should have, right? I should have done that and had a good laugh at myself with everybody else, but you know, anyways. But that's what it means. It means to miss the mark. And the Bible says this, many of you know in Romans, that all have sinned, missed the mark, and fallen short of the glory of God. So when we look at this story... Don't be so quick to say, David, what a terrible scumbag. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then it goes on to say, the wages of sin is death. See, God, even, God knew we were going to miss the mark. And you're like, if he created us and he created the world, why would he create us if he knew we were going to miss the mark just so we could just die? Because that's the wages of sin. Is that, why would he do that? <coughs> Well, no, not so we could die. But someone had to die. Jesus. Jesus died in our place. 
Jesus paid for this sin. Jesus pays for our sin. He takes the place where we are supposed to be on the cross because we missed the mark. And he took that. And when we decide to believe that, that Jesus died for us on the cross, that he rose again from the grave, and we let that belief change our lives, he sets us back on the road to life again. See, earlier in this message, I talked about it only took two chapters to mess everything up from God, for, for David. And when I first wrote this, I, I said, you know, it could only take two chapters of your life to make the whole rest of your life a fight. And that's true, by the way. But I didn't say that. Why? Because we have a chance yes. to get back on the road to life because of Jesus. And when you have two chapters or one chapter or one section of one chapter that screws everything up, you have hope today that God can make it so the rest of your life isn't a fight but a trophy of his grace. But it's because we need Jesus. And I could sit up here and I could tell you stories in my life. Yeah, I don't know how some of you would react, but you, you, I could tell you that I, I have led enough of a life that would have not only disqualified me from ministry, but just I could have been left destroyed. But God, Jesus. His strength is perfect in my weakness. Yes, and I will tell you, he's taken those weaknesses and he's made me a better minister because of them. And in your life, when you give it to Jesus, when you go to the cross, he will make you a better man. He will make you a better woman because of him. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word today. And even in this difficult story that we've left in a difficult place, your word, as it says in James, is a mirror. It shows us who we really are and, and sometimes in uncomfortable ways. And Lord, help us not to shy away from the uncomfortableness because that is your conviction. And that's not the same as condemnation. We read it during worship. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but your conviction is a, is part of your mercy and your grace drawing us in and away from our sin saying come on that's going to destroy you let me save you help us not to shy away from that because when we run to you and we uncover ourselves to you then you cover us with your eyes closed this morning I want to ask you are, are you where you're supposed to be are there things you're covering? We're not going to have a time of confession up here. I'm, this is a time for you to respond to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's conviction is, and, and you're saying, I'm not where I'm supposed to be. I am covering things, and I don't want to be living that life anymore. That life is uncomfortable. 
And I know it. I know I'm not supposed to be where I am. And I would like you, Pastor, to pray for me that God would pull me out of this pit. If that's you, amen. If that's you, go ahead and lift a hand. We already had some hands go up. You say, that's me. I need to get out of this pit. Anyone else? I need to get out of this. Maybe, you can put your hands down, maybe you're on the other side of those decisions now. You're saying, Pastor, I've lived out my chapter or two of transgression, and my life since then has been nothing but trouble. And you're like, you know what? It's my fault. I've earned it. It's, it's because of me. So you know, I'm just going to resign to it. But I'm telling you today, it doesn't have to stay that way. You hear today say, Pastor, I don't know how. I can't even imagine what my life would look like if I wasn't fighting some battle. But you say there's hope for me. Would you pray for me? Say, that's me, Pastor. Will you pray for me? I've gotten out of it. I'm not making those decisions anymore, but I've messed things up royally. Yeah. Anyone else? Don't, don't pass up an opportunity. The Lord's here. Yeah. And it's his grace and mercy drawing you to repentance. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us, share with a friend, and hit subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you stream your podcasts. Our mission is simple. Come to life, connect to grow, find your purpose, make a difference. Thanks for listening to the Life Church Podcast.